It's Wednesday, February 25th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Mr. Tim Hansen. Happy Wednesday. Thank you, sir. It's starting to feel slightly warmer. It's starting to. It's still. It's still colder than average. Uh, that was my phone. I apologize. That's all right. Uh, it is cold. I had a pipe break in the house. It's chaos. Yeah, it's chaos at the house. We were talking yesterday about Home Depot, and I made the point that when you think about the winter weather and what it is doing to homes in vast portions of the United States. It's probably going to be a pretty good spring for Home Depot. You know, for Home Depot, lumber liquidators may be hoping that some of their seemingly low-cost, illegally sourced wood uh, will, <laughs> Wait, will find it. Didn't you see this? It's down 28% today on the, on the rumor that the Department of Justice is investigating them now. So, it's not, the DOJ has not confirmed they're investigating them? Uh, this was a press release by the company, so... They, okay. So, they disclosed, I think, a possible DOJ investigation. I don't know the exact wording, so... But the market's reacting significantly. <laughs> and by significantly, you mean horribly for the stock. Well, you know, it is it is a little bit of a thesis underminer if their recent profit margin improvement was based on breaking the law. So, <laughs> And as I say from time to time, when Uncle Sam comes knocking at your door, it's not to give you candy and flowers. That's true. All right. We're going to talk uh, about the beer industry and the latest earnings out of the beer industry. We'll dip into the full mailbag. But I wanted to talk to you first and foremost, about what's going on in Europe. Um, and specifically- What the hell is going on in Europe? What is going on in <laughs> Europe? I mean, so we have the recent, you know, as if you, if you listen to Tony Kornheiser's uh, local sports talk radio show- Is he even talking about the European debt crisis now? <laughs> he's not. But during the, during the football season, um, he begins e- each week with the question about uh, the Washington Redskins. He begins uh, the interview with the local reporter with, where are we now? And that's kind of how I feel about Europe. Where are we now? We had the recent election in Greece. New Prime Minister uh, Alexis uh, Tsipras. I, Close enough. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, who appears it's to be- It's all Greek to you. <laughs> wow, we're a little giddy today. Um <laughs> Who is now in the position of having to balance uh, making good on all of his election pledges to roll back austerity and that sort of thing, and having to also satisfy creditors, and they're now looking to get uh, an extension on their debt? Is that where they They are? did get a four-month extension. Okay. They got a four-month extension. Um, where are we now is that we're, <laughs> we're kind of back to square one. There, there's an article... Uh, in the Wall Street Journal today, saying that you know if if the Greek government could just if they could just collect the taxes that they've imposed on people, you know their budget crisis would be would be would be fairly solvable. Uh, and that, this, if you'll go back five years, was it's like look, hey, if Greece can just collect the taxes, this but they they can't collect the taxes. And, and you've talked about this before. The, the it's a big part of this is just corruption and evasion. And it's apparently it's there's. The article made the point of saying that tax evasion in, in Greece dates back to the days of the Ottoman Empire because it was a patriotic thing to not pay the Ottomans tax, and that that mindset <laughs> is just, I guess, continued. I, it seems like a reach, but who knows? Um, so, I mean, it, it, fundamentally, they continue to be at an impasse because there is no palatable solution to to anyone. Um, I mean, the Greek, some of the Greek politicians, lower level partisans in the Syriza party. Pointed out that hey, if we if we did collect these taxes, we'd drive many many businesses out of out of business, and then we'd our unemployment problem would be even worse. So maybe we don't want to collect the taxes. 
you know, it, it, ultimately this probably falls to Germany to decide uh, how much they are willing to tolerate before their credibility is undermined. And, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know the answer to that. So, how concerned should the average U.S. investor be about what's going on in Europe? Because it seems, just from the standpoint of the media, it seems like the noise is now growing. There are more headlines, and the tip, you know, the I don't want to say the tipping point, but the, uh, you know, sort of the the latest domino to fall is this election in Greece. But it, it seems to have touched off a, a fresh wave of concern about the general economy in the EU. Well, you know, I mean, we've been in this this position for the last five years or so, which is that the global economy, generally speaking, is is weak. Um, and everybody seems to be on the brink, if they're not in recession, of teetering back into recession. Now, the US, the U.S. economy was weaker a few years ago, but, but there were some brighter spots in Europe and Asia that were kind of pulling the, the global economy along. China is generally forecast to have a bad year this year. Um, if they have a bad year, Australia is probably going to have a bad year. Uh, Latin America is weak. Brazil is very weak. And the United States has been showing some renewed signs of life. I mean, the economic reports here have been, have been fairly good. Now, if they have a massive banking crisis in Europe, um, that causes that entire region to plunge back into a deep recession and Asia's week and Latin America's week, it probably would be hard for the United States to keep chugging along just because any export-oriented businesses, you know, international finance, those sorts of, of industries in the United States that, that contribute to our GDP would feel the, the, the shockwaves from that. I mean, your average um, American citizen, you know, if they were to have a European banking crisis, you probably wouldn't feel a a real shock on a day-to-day basis, but um, you know, for an economy that our economy, which has just sort of gotten some traction back and, and showing positive signs, um, you know, it would not be good for a, a major. The other, you know, the Europe writ large is about, you know, and the United States and China are probably the three biggest economic players globally. For two of them to be down, it would be harder for us to continue to be up. Is part of the equation here, uh, and we've seen this recently uh, with a bunch of companies reporting earnings uh, where to the extent that they have a bad earnings report or part of their earnings report is bad is due to currency problems the strength of the US dollar relative to the strength of other currencies and it seems like you know on the one hand you could be an average investor saying well i'm not you know i don't Invest in any Greek companies, so what do I care? On the other hand, to your point, if these other major economies are suffering and to some extent their currencies are weaker, if you own shares of a company that's doing a lot of business outside the United States, then guess what? This is your problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, any, any, any dollar. <clears throat> Any investment you've made in dollars that is now in a different currency has, has, I mean, it's just gotten crushed this year, last year. I mean, even the U.S., the Mexican peso is, is 15 to 1 right now, which is, I mean, that's crazy high. Um, the bright side, everybody should have, I hope, very exotic spring break plans because now <laughs> is the time, now is the time to travel abroad with your dollars. Um, the downside, of course, is, you know, any export-oriented business is is unhappy, um, and businesses that need to translate money back into dollars are are taking, you know, in many cases, non-cash hits. And I, you know, 
as long as those multinationals can leave that money in the local market to invest, they're kind of agnostic about the currency situation, even though they do report it back into dollars for, for reporting purposes. But if the money never comes home, then functionally, it doesn't matter that much. Last question, and we'll move on. Is there a particular region of the world outside the U.S. or an industry that you are starting to dig into more now because of everything you just said? Or when you get to work in the morning and you're just sort of looking across the globe, are you just sort of throwing up your hands and saying, boy, there's, <laughs> I'm hard-pressed to find something I want to invest in? Um, yeah, I mean, we're always looking. I mean, I, I was in China recently looking because I mean, if, if they're going to have a bad year, um, and and the Chinese domestic market had been had been on a, on a bit of a hot streak, um, you know, you'd expect valuations to fall and maybe something interesting comes out of it. We were in Brazil for that reason in in December, looking looking at things, sort of turning over stones, so to speak. You know, the currency issue is is a difficult one. Um, as long as the dollar keeps getting stronger, that's a headwind if you don't hedge it. Um, you know, and, and generally speaking, our approach has been not to hedge and say that currency evens out over time, but that's been a bad position to, to hold over the last year or two years. Um, but in terms of, you know, looking at things, you know, ultimately, I think long, you know, over the very long term, China, Brazil are all interesting places to be invested. In, and so you would you would want to take advantage, um, but certainly tread carefully because the news in many of those places continues to seem to get worse rather than better. Lest any and Rus- Ru- Russia debacle, <laughs> still too Putiny. Oh, way too the Putin-y. ruble, <laughs> barely a currency at this point. Uh, lest our <laughs> listeners think that absolutely everything is great in the United States, we move on to Boston Beer Company, where the stock is falling seventeen percent this morning because fourth quarter results were lower than expected, and they lowered guidance for the entire uh, for the entire new fiscal year. You dug into this a little bit. How how bad was this? You know, for I mean, for America, I think what Boston Beer is telling you this is a good thing, and the, and the reason is because generally speaking, they're citing competition, um, particularly at the local level, for uh, as a headwind for their growth and volumes and pricing, and 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 you know that's great because that means everybody. I mean, it seems like every town in America now has their own brewery, and I think that's awesome. If you're a beer drinker, flat out, that's awesome. Um, you know, it's not awesome for Sam Adams, who, you know, the craft brewing category can, continues to grow quickly, but there are more and more entrants into it, and so you know, so Sam Adams is no longer growing as quickly as the category, and um, you know, they were pioneers of this category many, many years ago. But fast forward to today, and they've tried to get more forward thinking. They're investing a lot more in R&D and development. They have all sorts of new beers coming out. They said in the press release they're going to do a nationwide rollout next year of their you know, double IPA. They have a session IPA. They did this year. They had a West Coast IPA that came out. But they, they're, they're a little bit behind the curve in terms of, of, of that, of innovation and style innovation. And um, their beers, generally speaking, are rated as you know average they're average beers. They're good, average, good to average. So, in a competitive, in, in a fast-growing category that's attracting a lot of startup capital with a lot of sort of more forward-thinking, smaller competition, you know, this is a a challenge for Sam Adams. And they had a good year, and and they are forecasting to have a good year next year. But this stock was, as one of the only publicly listed ways to play, um, 
the, cra- the the growth in in craft beer. You know, the only other one I think that's that's listed is uh, Craft Brewers Alliance, yep. which is, you know, you know, magnitude smaller than than Sam Adams, and um, and Sam Adams is magnitude smaller than Anheuser Busch, right? But that, I mean, and that's just to speak to. I mean, if Sam Adams is the you know Sam Adams is doing I think less less than a billion in sales. Um, but you you know all these and if they could capture the category you know they'd have an exponential growth wave but you know i mean in dc alone in the dc area right now i think we have 10 or 11 you know craft breweries you know and there's only so much shelf space at whole foods or or, or giant or what have you and um, that is a challenge for 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 boston beer and the stock had been on a tremendous round and was you know had gotten quite expensive and i think that's just the market correcting its expectations for um, you know, ultimately, what is be, what is an extremely competitive and cutthroat category? It seems like the beer industry is moving towards uh, you know to the point you just made about the DC area, and it's not just the Washington DC area. There are, there are a lot of regions in this country where craft breweries are popping up, and it seems like it is becoming more like the pizza industry in the United States, where if you're just looking at a chart of what's the biggest player in the pizza industry, it's not Domino's or Papa John's or Pizza Hut. It's independence. It's mom and pop. It's the local. You add them all together, right? Right. If you add them all up together, and if you, you know, if you're a beer drinker and you've got all of a sudden you have all these choices, I think it. I think in in a way, Sam Adams, which has had a great run, both the business and the stock, is now almost in this in between stage where. It's not like if you like craft. They've defined the category, but now there are all these small independent brewers mm-hmm. who can just go to people like you and say, "Well, if you like craft beer, come to us. You don't have to buy this mass-produced craft beer." So they're in that, and on the other side, they've they don't have the distribution capabilities of a behemoth like Anheuser Busch. Yeah, I mean, they're increasingly. I think you know. You talk about distribution. That's another challenge because just as there's only so much shelf space, there's only so much truck space, and so there are a lot of distributors who have emerged to carry, um, to carry craft beer. You know, but the thing is, is that what they're hearing from retailers, you know, like Whole Foods and and, and others, is that they want variety, and so, you know, Sam Adams may have forty different flavor or SKUs, but somebody may say, "I'm only going to take two of them," and then you know, down the road from us, we have. We have Port City Brew, and they're going to say, "All right, I'm going to take two from Port City as well." So now these two companies, which are massively different in scale, have the same amount of space on the right. truck, and that's you know, and that's a hard, you know, it, it's in, you know, most in most industries the trend is towards consolidation, um, but for you know, in, in brewing and in food, it seems like the trend is towards deconsolidation and localization, and that's a hard thing to compete against because if Sam Adams is stuck in this weird middle ground where you know when they were. Picking, trying to pick off Budweiser. I mean, that was a fight everybody could get behind. But if Sam Adams were going to come after, you know, my local brewery, that's the kind of thing that engenders ill will, not goodwill. And I, you know, it's a it's a difficult line to walk where you know we need to compete for our business, but we don't want to drive out, you know, ostensibly our peers because there's this brewing community and so on and so forth. It's a tr- it's I think they're in a tricky position. This is a stereotype, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Everything I've ever read or heard about people who make beer, whether it's just a friend who makes it in his basement or just people who start something like Port City Brewery here in Alexandria, um, 
there's a great passion that they have for the product. Um, there's uh, a higher level of free spiritedness to the to the individual, and that to me is just one more problem for <laughs> Sam Adams, and you know the the Budweisers of the world because those people are more likely to say, "No, I'm good. I I, I don't need to sell my company. I don't need to sell my little business. I'm happy making my beer." For just myself, or just this little city, or just this region of the country, I'm not looking to get any bigger. That, I mean, but even if they do choose to grow, I mean, what you know, one of the trends that drives consolidation is that a business, you know, lacks access to growth capital, and due to the low interest rate environment and the explosion in craft beer, banks are falling over themselves to lend to these breweries to expand. Now, ultimately, there's a point where. Um, that investment doesn't make sense, but as long as the entire craft sector is stealing from Budweiser, that capital will earn a good return, and so it will just keep coming, and more and more, com- you know, more and more breweries will start. You know, existing breweries, small breweries will get bigger and bigger. Um, you know, I think the people of Port City were saying that you know it was hard to start the company, but now it's like they got to beat people off of the stick who want to invest or you know lend them money. <laughs> Take my money, right? <laughs> and, and you know, for Sam Adams. Uh, who has a very robust balance sheet, you know, access to the public markets, you know, would be ostensibly an acquirer of brands that were troubled. I mean, there's nothing troubled right now. And so it's a very, their competition, even though they're small in scale, doesn't lack for some of the resources that you would expect small competitors to lack for. I want to mention uh, Motley Fool Stock Advisor once again. You can get 75% off. Just text the word FOOL to 38470. That's 38470. Text the word FOOL, and you get 75% off our flagship newsletter investing service. I mentioned yesterday, philosophy, for me, was the college class that I got the least out of. had a wonderful college experience at, at Boston College, but that's the class that I look back on and think, ah, I, I really, I really, truly retain nothing from that class. Got an email from Bud Turner in Palmdale, California. My freshman son just dropped philosophy last week, and Bud <laughs> wrote out a transcript of the conversation he had with his son. Dad, would it be okay if I dropped philosophy? Why? It's not what I thought it was going to be, and the professor has a really monotone voice, and he has this crazy accent, so I can't understand him. But you're all right. But you're going to have to pay me for the class. How much is it? One hundred twenty dollars. And his son said without hesitation, "I'll transfer the money right now." And, <laughs> and then also weighing in on the mo- <laughs> the most useless college class from Michael Palmer in St. Louis, Missouri, walking. Yes, that was a course. I needed the credits to keep financial aid and my job. And yes, people did fail it. I don't know where he went to school. Now, I- is, it, is it? See, these are these. I think are two different things. Most useless, or thing I retained the least from. I, you know what? Take your pick. You can go in either direction. I mean, for me, it's it, it's it's not that philosophy is useless. It's just that I. I don't remember a single thing from that class, and I can't imagine I use anything in my day-to-day life from that class. Got it. Um, you went to Georgetown University. I did. And I'm assuming that, like me, you had a, a great college experience, uh-huh. uh, but I'm also assuming that, like me, you probably have one class that you look back on and think, ooh, boy, I'm not really using that all that much. Yeah, you know, and it's actually, I, this is, this is I got I to gotta see in this class, because I, I think I disconnected from it. Midway through the semester, it's just like I'm not even. I, looking back, I, 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 you know, it was. I don't use it. I don't really remember anything about it. And I think at the time, I, you know, I, I 
realized very early on that it was a mistake to have enrolled in it. But at Georgetown, you have to take, at least when I went there, you had to take um, at least two semesters of philosophy and at least two semesters of theology. And um, my sophomore year, I was I needed to finish up my theology requirement. And so I was looking at the list of uh, theology classes. And, you know, there were, in hindsight, I probably should have signed up for, you know, something like the history of Catholicism or the history of Islam. It would have been useful. I would have learned something. But, I, you know, at that point, I was very interested in finding, like, niche classes. At one point, I took a class entirely on Dr. Shivago, the book. <laughs> Wow, that is a rich <laughs> class. So my sophomore year, I signed up for uh, a class in theology called Pierre Tehar de Chardin and the Theology of Evolution, which I thought was going to be a fascinating look at the interplay between science and religion. It wasn't that, and I don't really recall what it turned out to be, and I got a C in it. So that, that for me is the that sounds like fault, regret. That sounds like faulty advertising. I could see where just from the name of the class you would feel it. Because, I mean, if it was... The history of evolution and religion. Uh, yeah, you would have been on. That top would have been. I would have been fascinated by that. But something, something fell apart for me there, and uh, and and I don't really know what. You can read more from Tim <laughs> Hansen by going to foolfunds.com and signing up for Declarations, which is the free monthly newsletter from the Fool Funds team. Don't expect to read anything about theology and. Evolution, but uh, hey, you never know. Lots of stuff about it. <laughs> yeah. But you're not you're not the only one who writes on declarations, so maybe Bill Mann or or one of the other people down there will do it. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, man. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 